All right, y'all, welcome to another episode of the Good Newscast. As always, Colin here with you. I've got Jeff Hatton uh, with us, pastor at Redeemer. Jason uh, with us, a member of Redeemer, who we did a podcast weeks ago. Yeah, about two months ago, I think. Two months ago on IBLP, Institute in Basic Life Principles. Correct. Uh, There's a documentary out on Amazon uh, about it. This is kind of Bill Gothard's whole movement. Um, why would we even do a podcast on it? Because whether you know it or not, uh, there's potential you in some way are connected. Perhaps your parents went to a Bill Gothard conference at one point. Perhaps you've read a book that came out of that world. It's got massive tentacles, I should say, in wider evangelicalism. So even if you've never heard the name Bill Gothard or IBLP, you don't know what that is. Um, hopefully, uh, the first episode we did this one, maybe there's connection, but principally, uh, as we talk about what they believe, what they don't believe, that maybe the gospel uh, of the scriptures becomes clear and who God is and uh, the freeing power of his grace. We've also got a guest with us today, Kevin. Kevin, introduce yourself and then also tell us a little bit briefly about your connection to IBLP. Hi, my name's Kevin, Kevin Falk. Um, I'm, went, I go to Redeemer Austin, or I used to go to Redeemer Austin for quite a while. Uh, is that... PCA? Yes. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so I got involved with IBLP. I first went to a uh, to a basic seminar. That's their initial indoctrination. I think when I was 11 or 12 years old, um, used to be at the Palmer Auditorium and down in Austin. It was a big deal. There were hundreds of people that would come. My parents started taking me as a child. And then when I was in eighth grade, I believe, is when we enrolled in ATI. That was about 1990. 1991, somewhere in that window. And I was heavily involved in ATI for the next 13 years. Um, I worked for them in their children's ministries, both public school ministries and their kind of VBS style summer school, summer camp ministries. And I worked for their college. Uh, I went to the law school that was started by uh, other ATI guys um, and just had a, it was my whole life. It was my friends. It was my family. It was everything for me for about 13 or 14 years. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. So uh, you'll hear a lot more from Kevin. To segue into kind of what we're going to talk about today, the last episode we did kind of left off begging the question of what is the good news of IBLP? Does IBLP, number one, preach the gospel of the Bible, the true gospel, the one and only gospel? Do they preach that gospel? Do they teach that gospel? Uh, what is the good news if they have any? What is the good news? Um, in the documentary, if you watch it, there's a point where Jim Bob, so the Duggars, uh, you know, 38 kids and counting, whatever it is, uh, it's kind of about that they were part of IBLP. And at one point, Jim Bob is trying to evangelize, I remember. I don't know where he was, but they were like traveling, I think. And he's talking to someone. And I remember it was that moment of the documentary that I, I, I realized, and I obviously had the hunch, but it came so clear that I thought, man, he seems to not know what the good news is. And he's, he, he just is fumbling over his words and trying to explain the simple gospel really quick in 10 seconds to someone on the street. And, and it occurred to me, I thought, you know, if he sat there, if that person said, hey, what is, what's good principles for parenting? I bet he could go on and on and on super clearly. But in a moment where he's presented the opportunity to share good news, God sent his son to live, die, rise, ascend to heaven, to forgive you of all of your sins, 
for free by grace alone, it was like he couldn't do it. And I and it raised this huge question for me that obviously I kind of figured, which was, do they even know the gospel? And, and even if they do, they clearly, it's not the heartbeat of the organization. It's not the driving message of the organization where it should be the driving message of the church. So with that being said, let's work into that. Um, and we're going to try to do things kind of swiftly because there's good ground to cover. But I'll throw it to Jason and or Kevin. We're passing back mics and forth. What is the gospel? What does IBLP teach regarding the gospel? So I think the first thing we need to do is define what is the gospel. And I specifically went looking for a definition that most evangelical, generally orthodox uh, churches would agree with. Uh, So the Wycliffe Bible Encyclopedia summarizes the gospel message in this way. The central truth of the gospel is that God has provided a way of salvation for people through the gift of his son to the world. He suffered as a sacrifice for their sin, overcame death, and now offers a share in his triumph to all who will accept it. The gospel is good news because it is a gift of God, not something that must be earned by penance or self-improvement. Now, this is not exactly a Reformed definition, but it's generally acceptable by most Orthodox uh, versions of Christianity. So we need to say, okay, where does IBLP differ uh, you know, from this definition? Uh, because it's going to give lip service to the things that are in that definition. But their whole um, works-based new approach to life is going to undermine every piece of that. So uh, in the next episode or two, we're going to go over four things. Uh, we're going to discuss uh, Gothard's stronghold diagram, uh, his development of reprobation, 17 basic commitments, and some of the commitments made in the conferences and seminars. So um, let's let's start with the stronghold diagram. And uh, Kevin, would you like to uh, kind of explain that for us? So getting into how does IBLP's understanding or preaching of the gospel differ from what Protestants worldwide would say is the gospel, starting with their whole idea of strongholds and whatever that means. Right. So I'm just going to quote real quickly to start with from a book called A Comprehensive Course in Effective Counseling, Part 2. And this was published by IPLP in probably the early 90s. Uh, And this quote just says, Even as our spirit is born again at salvation, our soul needs to be conquered, as pictured by the land of Canaan in the Old Testament. Canaan was the land of promised blessings, but first it had to be conquered because there were entrenched strongholds such as the walled cities of Jericho and Ai. The soul is conquered by asking by our asking God to take back the ground we gave to Satan. And this is fundamental to their idea here, is that your spirit, and this gets into the trichotomy issue that y'all discussed last time, your spirit's saved. And so they'll present the gospel as having saved your spirit. But then you'll, you can see this stronghold diagram. I, I think you could just Google it or maybe we'll put it in the show notes. I don't know. But it, it looks like a game board. And on one side playing the game, you've got God's spirit and your spirit. And that's the part of you that's saved. And on the other side of the game board, you've got your body and Satan. And those are the parts that are not saved. Um, also kind of getting into this Gnostic view of the spiritual is good and the material is evil. Your body is just evil. It's not saved. And so in between, you have this grid layout of this game board that is your soul. And now you've got to win the game over the course of your life to save your soul. Satan has parts of your soul. God has parts of your soul. You've got to fight this battle to win. 
um, in order to save your soul or else. And I think he quotes from uh, he'll quote from first Corinthians sometimes to say, you know, otherwise you'll be saved by the skin of your teeth. Um, you know, and he, he gets this whole idea from Ephesians. In Ephesians, you know, we have the, this, the brief quote of, you know, don't give place to Satan. And this is one of the things that Mr. Gothard loved to do. Um, he would go on a month-long retreat. Jason mentioned it earlier before the show. He'd go on a month-long retreat and fast and pray, and he would find some little phrase in Scripture, and he would blow it up into an entire new theology. And so Ephesians says, don't give place in your, don't give ground to Satan. And so it becomes this giant diagram. It becomes course after course, night after night of lectures about how you give parts of your soul to Satan. And that presents you, prevents you, I should say, from being truly sanctified, from being truly saved. Kevin, can I ask you a question? Just right. You participated in this, correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. So what, what was the appeal? Like, even as I'm hearing this, um, it's it's incredibly strange and shocking to the ear but when you're there what is appealing to you or why is this so appealing or why does this seem to get an audience well i think there's a lot of answers for a lot of different people i'll say like generally like if you just look at this book he's if you conquer your your strongholds you're going to stop having high blood pressure. You're going to stop having insomnia. And I'm just literally looking at the book and reading. You're going to stop having allergies. You're going to stop having back pain. Um, You're also going to have to stop fighting battles with lust or anger or jealousy. So he's promising that if you follow his system, you know, you're going to have this great life. It's, it's, it's a slightly spiritualized name it and claim it. You know, he's not promising you a car, but you know, back pain is a big deal too. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. That's good. Thank you. So I think also to connect this and y'all can keep talking, you know, where you go, well, I've I've never heard stronghold. I wasn't a part of it. Think how this connects to so much errant doctrine about um, even in evangelicalism, it can get a lot more simple than that, right? Like, yeah, you're saved, but if you don't, if you're not faithful to your spiritual disciplines and you're not faithful to evangelize and you're not faithful to volunteer in the kids ministry and the, the list goes on, well, maybe you're not like totally saved or maybe you'll be saved by the skin of your teeth, right? This is all over evangelicalism where we'll break up two classes of Christians. There's the ones among who are saved. They're the ones who are like really saved. And then there's the ones who just are basically going to skate by. They'll end up in heaven, but barely, right? Uh, I mean, this is this is in uh, Roman Catholicism. This is everywhere. This is just a different flavor of it. Yeah. So it seems like you have a different, yeah, different form. So there's always some new thing, whether it's this teaching or whether we're going to get another teaching on parenting, or there's always some new law that holds out paradise, holds out blessing, holds out meaning, holds out the ultra life, and he seems to offer a lot of those from what I'm gathering the biblical life principles that there's always a new principle that you enact or activate in your life and it blesses you unleashes heaven for you in some form or manner correct right and one of the things that he would talk about a lot is the light in your eyes and if you're following all of his teachings, if you're doing all the things that you're supposed to do, it's going to show, and you would reference Moses, you know, having been around God and his countenance shining. Like, if you're living 
the right way, your countenance is going to shine and all these people around you, they're going to see it. I think this is another one of the offers, right? Is, oh, hey, everybody's going to see how great you are. Everybody's going to be able to tell how great you are, how really spiritual you are. And that's another one of those things that's going to appeal to that, that ambition, right? And then pride in our souls. That, that In decrying sin, he's appealing to the sins that we are, that we have still living in us. All right, what else break down on strongholds? This is that first aspect of how they differ in the gospel. Yeah. So after uh, Gothard got kicked out of IBLP, um, he had another teaching that I thought was uh, rather comical, but adds some uh, interesting pieces to the stronghold diagram. He taught that we have uh, three brains. So, obviously, obviously. Yeah. so uh, we, we, we have the head brain. The head brain is the location of the soul, mind, will, and emotions. Uh, it does not require any faith. Uh, it's intellectual acceptance only. Then we have the heart brain. It's stronger. It controls the head brain. It needs little faith. Needed for salvation, but, but can be damaged with competing affections. And then there's the gut brain. Strongest, controls the heart brain. Requires great faith. And it's the level of faith necessary for salvation. So what's very interesting to me about this is that it exposes that Gothard does not see faith as relating to the soul. Um, this makes sense in relation to his teaching about the soul being a battleground and relating salvation to the spirit only. So... Yeah, so it's kind of like, it, as simple as this gets, hey, Bill or IBLP, am I saved? Well, sort of. Partly. Like, well, oh, oh, he would say yes. He would say your spirit is saved, but now you got to now you got to go have a battleground for your soul. Yeah, there's still more to conquer, which is terrifying. Yeah, if you say, "Hey, my soul is in limbo," it's like, what are you talking about? It, it, in a way, it even gets more terrifying when you because he breaks down his definitions even further. So you don't just have a spirit, soul, and body. Your soul is your mind, your will, and your emotions. So now you imagine, like, yeah. okay, I'm saved. Yeah but not my mind. I'm saved, but not my will. I'm saved, but not my emotions. Right, exactly. Everything that would make you identifiably you is not actually saved. There's just some amorphous spirit that made it to heaven. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, we're talking about some weird teaching that probably nobody's ever heard of. Why does this matter? Well, as we've said in the past, Gothard's teachings kind of seeped into the rest of evangelicalism. So um, I'm going to quote from a book that's out there right now. I'm not going to dignify this book with a name or an author because I don't want to promote it. Um, but this is what this is a paragraph in this book. I put my trust in Christ when, when I became a Christian. He holds the deed to my heart. Unfortunately, many times, although Christ owns the property, we live like traitors, having given the right of ownership to other people and other things. Yes, Christ is the owner, and that will be evident when the dust settles, but we are prone to giving our hearts to squatters all the time. This may not be terribly uh, obvious unless you have a little bit of background, but this is the stronghold diagram in the light version. Um, so I'm not sure if this uh, author got exposed to Gothard's teachings or statements, but indirectly, uh, he certainly uh, has kind of the same milieu as, as Gothard. All right, so that's strongholds. Uh, there were four aspects. Strongholds, talk about the 17 basic commitments. 
so if you don't mind, can we talk about development of reprobation first? Because that's a little bit uh, more connected to the strong. That's what all the listeners were thinking. They were thinking, <laughs> hold on. Can we talk about the development of reprobation? Yes. You're using big words, Jason. Yes. So development of reprobation. So if you have your uh, basic seminar workbook, this is Got on page it. 111 and 112, because I'm sure everybody has that on their uh, bookshelf. Yeah. <laughs> Pulling out. Yep. Just Kevin. Uh you know, one of the things that I did learn from Gothard is that you should destroy all evil in your home. And so when I got of IBLP, I destroyed all of his teachings. Uh, Kevin <laughs> clearly did not embody that teaching nearly as much. And so he's got bookshelves and boxes of all this stuff. But my wife did get me a stamp that says heretical nonsense. And we stamped <laughs> all the books with that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, the yes. So, First of all, I think it's very interesting that on page 111, he points out that he's meeting individually with young women and admitting to, admitting to do so even at this early date. This came out in the mid-80s. So it's, it, it is interesting that he admits that, but that's a side note. So uh, on page 112, we would expect um, that Gothard would say something like, you're a sinner, throw yourself on Christ for his mercy. Uh, but the answer is a diagram, of course, and he calls it the development of reprobation. And uh, given that this is not video, you're going to have to kind of picture this in your mind. But um, it kind of starts at the bottom of the page and works upward. So we have God's standard, which is the spiritual as the strongest, um, the mind, will, and emotions as the second, and the physical is under control. Okay? Then the second uh, level uh, is the word concupiscence. Okay? And so this puts the physical at the highest level. Sensual, mind, will, and emotions is the second level, and the spiritual is the weakest. And then above that is reprobation. Physical is in control, psychological, which he calls pseudo-philosophical, um, as the second, and then there's uh, spiritual is non-existent. Uh, the reason I think this is uh, important is because you can only come to this kind of conclusion if you are a trichotomist. But... Um, on page 117, he talks about uh, learning to hate evil and that this comes before repentance. So you have to learn to hate evil before you can repent. Uh, and the order that he says is you minimize uh, the benefits of evil, you maximize the consequences of evil, you make no pr uh, provision for the flesh, and you test your hatred of evil. Only once you have um, learned to hate evil can you repent, which nowhere in Scripture does it talk about that. Repentance... I mean, God has to open your eyes, and then you repent. I mean, this he's got it all backwards. Um, page 118 defines the root cause of sin as being the boss of your life instead of Jesus, rather than an inherent sin nature. So he denies an inherent sin nature. Um, it puts the responsibility for regeneration on the individual instead of God. So the answer to not believing in God is that you are violating his standards, not that you need to throw yourself on his mercy. And the denial of the, the sin nature is kind of an interesting idea there, because I think it, the other thing he does is he isolates sin to your body, right? It is physical, where good is spiritual. So there's nothing in this chart about salvation. But if your spirit's in control, well, then that's good. You are, you are living the way you're supposed to live. If your body's in control, then you're not. And he doesn't... He tries to break these things down as if we were... He's able to dissect... The human being, 
right? Where when Scripture talks about the spirit and soul, right, it says the word of God's powerful and can even cleave spirit and soul. It's implying that it takes power to do that. Mm-hmm. But he does it routinely, and just with charts, it's amazing. Um, and so does he, he see, does he see it primarily as an act of your will? What what's the power mechanism in his system that you understand it to be like? What activates what's happening? You consciously recognizing it is that the activation is it i'm making a choice is that the activate what's the activating trigger i would it's a really good question i my my instant analysis would kind of be to say that it's knowledge it's a very kind of modern view right and that's why you have all these charts you have step by step you know if you look in his writings it's constant seven steps to do this uh we'll talk about in a minute 17 basic commitments he loves enumerating things and having steps. And so I think it's this idea that this knowledge, which also kind of gets into the Gnosticism, the yeah. secret knowledge, yep. right? Is that's what leads you to being able to live a really Christian life. So once you attain the knowledge, you've been activated. Once you understand this reprobation, all of a sudden you're no longer in reprobation and you're in whatever the first one was that you're supposed to be in. Is that what happens? Well, I think or do you need to do something? Right. You've got to you've got to go through your 17 commitments ah, or however many commits okay. there are. And as you as you follow the commitments, you're going to start to move towards the good side of the chart. OK, so there isn't there. There's an in his understanding and the teachings that you've experienced. There is a sense that these laws that he's giving you all and has given are attainable. Oh, yes. Okay. Oh, yes. Because that's why. He could travel around the world with his bright, shining crew of, you know, people with light in their eyes and have all these world leaders invite him into their countries and ask him to do things in their countries. Um, because they've attained right this. And it was remarkable the degree to which uh, spirituality was correlated with physical attractiveness, especially in girls. But, um, really? But with guys, too. Like, the people who merited being on headquarters staff... The people who merited being on the travel teams were almost always people who were um, people like me. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. It's uh, hilarious. All right. So uh, I think the next thing to discuss is his uh, seventeen, not seventeen commitments, seventeen basic commitments. Mm-hmm. So, uh, when you do the basic seminar, uh, there are 17, it's a week-long seminar every evening, uh, and at the end of that, you're supposed to make 17 basic commitments. And I think what is incredibly telling is the uh, statement that he has at the top of the chart where he has these 17 commitments. He says, the brightness of the countenance is often a reflection of the condition of the soul. You are the light of the world. The light of the body is the eye. Also, spiritual maturity is related to the number of spiritual commitments that we make and apply to our lives. In the seminar, 17 commitments are explained and opportunities are given to make them. We encourage you to review and maintain these commitments so you can be an effective light to the world. So clearly, we have a measure of spiritual maturity here. So um, these these are the 17 basic commitments. Self-acceptance. Uh, four essential attitudes, reverent, grateful, servant, quiet, submission to authority, clear conscience, forgiveness, transforming irritations, yielding rights, obedience to God's spirit, 
Cleansing My Life, Assurance of Salvation, Scripture Meditation, Daily Bible Reading, Eight Callings, Conquering Habits, Standards and Courtship, Honoring Marriage, Growing in Love. Now, that's a long list. Some of these are good things. For example, God's Word is a means of grace through reading, memorizing, and meditating that are all healthy spiritual practices. However, in this list, they fall under, uh, we talked about Sproul's three legs of, of legalism in the last episode. These all fall under uh, abstracting God's law from its original context, preoccupied with obeying rules and regulations. Uh, the way they're formulated also has issues in many cases. We're going to briefly look at a few of these commitments to demonstrate how they distort Scripture and thus the gospel. We can't go through all 17 in this, this length. So the number one, I'm going to bring up a self-acceptance. I bring this up uh, because on his list of 10, he has 10 unchangeables. Number six was your physical features. And just to show how he didn't live by his own principles, he dyed his hair. So right off the bat, he's not living by his own principles. Um, so uh, number two, four central attitudes, uh, reverent, grateful, servant, quiet. So uh, the commitment reads, in order to exercise uh, my power of influence properly, I do purpose to have a reverent spirit uh, by separating position from personality, a grateful spirit by giving you my expectations. Now, this was used to deny needs. If you had a need that was not met, you were instructed that you needed to be grateful for whatever you got. Um, a servant spirit by proposing to make my authority successful. Uh, this goes with uh, submission to authority and being merged with, with their needs. Uh, a quiet spirit by overcoming fear and worry. So much like anger, fear, and worry were taught to be sins. Uh, and they would uh, first check, uh, don't worry about anything. So uh, number six was transforming irritations. Uh, he would say, number one is thank God for the irritation. Number two is identify possible causes. Did I cause it? There was a lot of victim blaming that happened here. Uh, and determine the objective. What qualities does God want to build in me? It assumes that we can always discern God's plan. Uh, number seven, yielding rights. Um, so there is an example of rights on page 102, uh, but it says express personal opinions without being jumped on. So either you are okay with people being rude to you or you shut up. Uh, what do you think most folks did? They shut up. Yeah. Jason, can I intervene just a second? Yeah. So the, the goal again for all of this is what? Spiritual maturity. Th this is how you prove that you're spiritually mature. And you're, you're proving that you're spiritually mature. And some of the evidence is when you attain this, yes. there'll be the light in your eyes, there'll yes. be this sense of... Absolutely. So there is a subjective element too, right? So you attain these objective things and you get some subjective experience. Yes. So in theory, you get the subjective experience. But in practice, what it does is if you don't have that, it means you're now under control. Right. Uh, and, I, and I will say, like, for me personally, this was a bit, this was the, the hook because I never got the experience. I never felt like I had arrived and I was there. And so I was always like, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? I'm doing something wrong. And so, you know, I would talked to Mr. Gothard and said, what what do I need to do? You know, this is my circumstance. What is it I'm missing? Why don't I have this great freedom, and this great power that you're talking about? And oh, well, why don't you try this commitment? Why don't you try jumping through this hoop? And so it all leads to a subjective experience and that becomes a hook for control because if, if the person doesn't have it, then they're always going to come back to you begging for what do I need? What's wrong with me? What do the, the leaders that communicate that they have had it? How, how are they operating? Like 
what are they what are they laying out to y'all to the the students what are they saying to you that they have activated they've done these things they've attained it and they've felt what what are they saying i feel or i sense or because well, you obviously sensed that you don't have it so someone has to be communicating that they've done these things and they've gotten it how would they communicate that to you in a lot of ways it's really similar to you know being at a testimony time at at a youth camp or something like that like the the sense of attainment i feel like is more about their personality are you the kind of just super confident personality who's going to walk into a room and own it? Well, then you're going to run through this list of things and you're going to pray the prayers for 15 or 20 minutes and, whoa, hey, I'm there. I'm great. And, you know, that's not necessarily a slam on those people. That's just how they are. Right. Where the personalities that are a little more introspective and a little more self-doubting are never going to get there. This is so fascinating because what you just said right there can translate into so... I had a, a favorite professor that used to say, training pastors he would say gentlemen you cannot confuse spirituality with personality it's really interesting so uh the last commitment that i'm going to cover here uh i think is important because it links to grace um and it's yielding rights so there, there there's a number of rights you're supposed to yield privacy and money and friends but What's very interesting is that the root cause for one of the examples of uh, not yielding rights is that you're resisting God's grace. And the example given is daughter failing to yield self to the total disciplines of Christ through parents' counsel and authority. So grace becomes linked to the umbrella of authority. If you don't submit to the umbrella of authority, you can't get grace. Um, And and I I find that that is quite uh, undermining. So... Those, those, it's hundred, it's a hundred percent abusive. Um, so those are the basic seventeen commitments. But then you have to understand that's just the basic seminar. That that's the that's the sales week. Then you get into you you you, know, you get into the homeschool program. Now you're deep in the cult, right? And every time you go to a conference or a seminar or whatever, there at the end of every session. I mean, there's probably at least four sessions a day. At the end of every session, they're asking you to make some kind of commitment. So some of these are line up very closely with traditional Baptist kinds of things. Don't don't drink, don't dance, don't go with the girls that do, don't listen to rock music, that kind of stuff. But there's plenty that, um, you know, no playing cards, uh, but there's plenty that uh, were kind of additional. So one that was harped on a lot was staying single for ministry until 30 years old. Um, they would uh, give the example of Jesus. When, when, I was, when I was 14, I was asked to vow to God to not get married till I was 30. Then I mean, they asked a room of 500 people to do that without calling their parents, without doing anything, without thinking about it. Just the, the traditional phrase was raise your hand up and then down and now pray with me and vow to not get married till you're 30. What, what's the deal as a side note with leaders of organizations like this and cult leaders and the, the idea that being single, cause I think it's rooted in the idea of like, you're more holy, right? So like, Catholic priests are single. Um, but then I, I even just thought of, I even just thought of David Koresh, right? Who, even though he was sleeping, uh, with, with multiple women, I don't know. Did they get married? I like, don't know if they did or the, not. The thought just came to my head though. Like in one sense, technically, they had to give up their marriages. technically David Koresh was single. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's some weird thing about leaders organization like this and cult leaders where it's like, 
singleness. I think part of that too is that they're looking for available labor. Totally. And you know, totally. Paul Paul even talks about you know that he who is married uh, cares for the needs of his wife. He who is single cares cares for the needs of the church. And this is an extreme example of that uh, by keeping people single. Um, you you created an available labor force. The other thing too that the documentary did not bring out um, is that now at some point this went away, but early on um, they charged you a hundred dollars a week to be at those quote training centers unquote because it was an apprenticeship. It was a room and board charge, so it wasn't just that they were getting free labor; they were getting a hundred dollars a week for every person that was there. Um, so so much this even when you're talking about the commitments, it's amazing how how superficial it can be. Like it, it, it can play out like this. We need a lot of kids volunteers. And then suddenly out of nowhere, we have a doctrine that says, if you volunteer in the kids ministry, you'll be saved, you know? And you're like, where'd that come from? It's like, well, it just came from the fact that we really need them. You know, we really need labors. Single people do a lot of labor. Suddenly we have a doctrine that singleness is holy. Sounds like an indulgence. It, we need, we, dude, we need a lot of money. Suddenly there's a doctrine that, Hey, if you know, coin in the coffer sets people free from, you know, purgatory. It's like you get into the nuts and bolts. Like this isn't even complicated at all. This is straight up just coming from like your basic needs for the movement and even probably personal stuff. Right. It's like a leader goes and sees a movie they shouldn't have seen in the movie theater. And suddenly they draw a hard line of like, nobody can go to the movie theater. It's like, how much of this is just your personal problem? Right. And that's a lot of the commitments cut that way. They say that the more commitments you have, the more mature you are, where, you know, we read scripture. It's the mature brothers who can eat the meat sacrificed to idols. It's the immature brothers who have to abstain. Right. But with IBLP, if you're mature, you don't listen to rock music. If you're immature, you do. They they completely turn it on its head. Okay, so I I kind of interrupt you, though. You were going through some of these conference commitments. Right. Being single. So... Uh, I found a handout, and this this came a little bit later. I'm guessing this is mid 2000s. Uh, it came out of a program called Journey of the Heart. I think that was a uh, Kevin. Do you remember what Journey of the Heart was? Well, yeah. So Journey to the Heart was when they had all these people who had committed to not get married until they were in their 30s, and then they had a bunch of 30 something singles. And so Journey to the Heart was like the the singles conference. That yeah, it was invite all the people who haven't figured out how to find a spouse yet to come up to Michigan, and I apologize to my friends who went to that. <laughs> wow! So, so you were involved in that? I did not go to Journey. <laughs> I was married by thirty. Okay, yeah. I didn't take the vow either. <laughs> so uh, I, I I pull this handout out because it is the most concise uh, summary of the kinds of things we were asked to commit to. So he's got a grid on it. Um, and the, the handout is, uh, is entitled how to measure your love for God. Um, oh yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. It's called how to measure your love for God. And he's got, uh, he's got two columns on it. The first column says competing affections and the second column says loving God. So I'm going to make pairs of statements. And the first statement is the competing affection. The second statement is, uh, loving God. So, uh, being with a friend or spending time with the Lord. So clearly none of us are spiritually mature right now because we're spending time with friends here. Okay. Listening to a friend or hearing God's voice through his word. So clearly y'all should be reading the Bible instead of listening to me right now. Uh, Talking to a friend or conversing with God. I'm sinning because I'm not talking to God right now. Right. Uh, Doing special things for friends or accomplishing things for Jesus. Uh, 
picturing what friends do or visualizing what God is doing. Enjoying a novel or feasting on godly biographies. <laughs> feasting. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, notice that whenever it's the good thing, it uses a very visually provocative word. Whenever it's the bad thing, it uses a, a very neutral word. Uh, indulging in sensual rhythms or singing spiritual melodies. Uh, looking at lustful pictures or admiring God's living epistles. Now, a living epistle is going to be other Christians who have followed these commitments. That 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 that's 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 a key word. Living epistle is uh, Wait, porn or a yeah, epistle? porn or looking at people who have who are spiritually mature. Yeah, that's the contrast. Yep, writing emails to friends or journaling for God, spending on my things or giving to God's people. So funny that the last one is the totally you know that that that's the money call and at the bottom of the page it says nevertheless i have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love revelation 2 4 so um i feel like that that handout really kind of summarized the not every single one was a commitment covenant i made but there was a lot of them in there that we did and it's a good summary of the kinds of things we were asked to commit to well and here's the deal that handout right there what you just read if you would have said hey i found this handout on a blog I would not necessarily go, oh, that for sure came from IBLP. Like a lot of that, I might say that might have come out of one of the most popular evangelical churches in the country today. I mean, just yesterday on Instagram, this young pastor who's real popular on Instagram was like uh, seriously talking to his audience and he was saying, pastors, if you don't pray more than you spend time like speaking on the microphone, you know, like he was just going at them. It was like this measure of you better calculate how much time. And I'm sitting there going, dude, this guy is on social media and podcasting and preaching like crazy. And I'm sitting there going, dude, are you really praying as, I mean, are you following your own rule? But my point is you hear that stuff in evangelicalism all the time. Do you talk to your friends more than God? And you sit there and you're like, oh no, I think so. And intuitively you go, yeah, that sounds like it would be bad. Surely I should talk to God more than my friends, you know, and then it just grabs hold of you. The other sneaky thing about this, the last thing I'll say, what's scary about it is that that is the opposite of measuring. Like when you measure something, you're like eight inches in an 18th. It's clear. It's black and white. Something like, you know, do you, it's all, it's all so vague that it loses you. You get lost and there is no way out. How could I possibly measure? I have to calculate every minute I spend talking to my friends and then verse prayer. And what if I have a bad week? There's no end to it. Nope. It's absolute spiritual depression. This makes me think too, is that how desperate we are to be justified. The fact that we will imprison ourselves and uh, shackle ourselves and enslave ourselves and torture ourselves and terrorize ourselves with this kind of bull. Right. It's unbelievable to me. Well, and, and, and what it is, is it says, you want to know how to live the Christian life? You don't have to think. Here's a program. Yeah. And and it, you are right. We are looking, if you're following this kind of program, you're looking to justify yourself. You're not looking for God to justify you. Yeah. The problem too is like we haven't made it through the Ten Commandments yet, if we're honest. Right. It's like we're 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 struggling with those ten, you know, and then we've got fifty five others that came out of Bill Gothard's retreat. Okay. Uh let's 
I think we're at to the point, Jason, if you want to try to summarize all this to wrap it up, mm-hmm. to go, okay, in summary, how does all of this differ from the good news of Scripture? Yes. So, there's a uh, blog that I found online that was written by a lady who uh, was raised in the cult and uh, no longer professes any belief in Christianity. And I thought she summarized her experience well. She says, I was looking for a fish, but it unknowingly grasped a snake. And she's right. So what is IBLP's gospel? It's good advice. Do this. Don't do that. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners, of which I am chief. The gospel is good news, not good advice. All right, I think that's a good place uh, to end. One of our um, Presbyterian greats, historically, I'm looking for the quote, but can't find it, but uh, J. Gresham Machen, or Macon, however you want to say it, he has a question, a famous question, where he says something, say, says something to the effect to, to churches, to pastors, and he basically says, do you have any good news? And his point is, I know the whole world from A to Z, wherever I go, I will get instructions for how to live, how to be better, how to be more holy, how to be gooder. My question, and I think every question of every church member this coming Sunday, whether they know it or not, deep down in their bones, they are saying, yes, 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 I know. I know I'm not living up to the standard, and I know you have more rules than you can count for me, but I have one question. Do you have any good news? Not advice of what I'm supposed to do, but news of something that's been done for me that is really good. The great news is of the Bible is, yes, we have good news. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son to die, that we would not perish. And salvation is free and salvation is full. One day it will be totally final. But justification is free and full and final for us today through faith alone by grace alone. Until next time, peace.